Our scripture today comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. But, they, but, but both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. There's a movie called Grand Canyon from 1991, which was referenced in a book by uh, Cornelius Plantinga, which I was reading. The movie starts when a lawyer and his wife are driving through a bad part of L.A. and their car breaks down. They call for a tow truck, but just after they hang up, a gang of five guys start, come and start to threaten and rob the couple. They have nowhere to go. Their car is broken down, and they're helpless. At the last second, their car is lifted up and connected to the tow truck. So apparently, the tow truck driver has arrived. The driver gets out and starts arguing with the leader of the five guys, convincing him not to rob the couple and to let them tow in safety. He says, man, the world ain't the way it's supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know it, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be, be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait by his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different from what it is. I think we can all sympathize with that idea on a daily basis. Maybe you get snubbed at work, or maybe you accidentally leave your wallet somewhere and someone takes it. Maybe you take your car to the mechanic and can't trust whether they're ripping you off or not. We want to get healthy, but the moment the time comes to start eating, you eat way too much, and only to feel the full effects half an hour later. Maybe you're driving somewhere and there's traffic and you realize that's because everyone's knowingly zipping into a lane that's ending to get around the traffic. 
which totally didn't happen right before I wrote this. And all that stuff happens, and you think, man, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But that stuff pales in comparison to some of the bigger ways things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You give money to a charity that promises to do great things for those in need, but instead they turn around and use that money for themselves. You see plenty of ways it's not supposed to be if you turn on the news. You watch it for more than three minutes, and you're guaranteed to see some of the most senseless evil you can imagine. It's enough to make you think that there's no place safe, no place sacred, and no place that evil doesn't touch. And worst of all, there doesn't seem to be any way to fix it. And even worse than that, we're part of the problem. I get frustrated with the drivers in front of me, and then a couple of real minutes later, I realize I was making things worse too. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and we know they're not supposed to, the way they're supposed to be, and we know we're part of the problem, and we have no idea how to fix it, and even if we did know how to fix it, we just wouldn't. This has been our constant experience since the dawn of the human race. Something is seriously wrong with us, and it goes down to our very nature. The story of the Bible says that this is called sin. And it's not just bad stuff we do, but it's like a disease that infects everything. Paul says all of creation was subjected to futility, and it makes it look like everything is pointless. Life can be hard sometimes, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. But there's something going on in our very nature that makes it stay like this. And we suffer pain and loss and evil and depression all the time. And it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of hope. The faithful people of Israel really understood this about the 600s BC. Invaders were coming in and taking over the promised land and deporting them far away. All they needed to do to stop them was to obey the law that God had given them, to stop worshiping idols, and to come back to God. But they just couldn't even do that simple thing. Even so, God promised something amazing. He would take this world that has been so damaged by sin you would make it completely new. Everything will change. And then we wouldn't have that thing in our nature that makes us know things aren't the way they're supposed to be and to make things worse anyway. Here's what God says about this coming world in Isaiah. See, I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a, as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred shall be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. 
The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The message of Easter is that somehow that world, that new heavens and new earth, started on Easter morning a little less than 2,000 years ago. The world we live in today, with all of its pain and sufferings and all the way it's not how it ought to be, that world began to be invaded by the new heavens and the new earth. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrected body was the very first foothold for the new heavens and the new earth in the very middle of this one. The current humanity that we experience today, which knows there's something wrong but can't do anything about it and even makes things worse, could begin to be transformed. Jesus was the very beginning of a new humanity. And you can see it in one of the most striking ways that John frames his story in this gospel. In the beginning, the very first members of the old humanity were Adam and Eve, who plunged all of the rest of humanity into the kind of sin that makes it less and less the way it's supposed to be. But John frames Jesus as a new Adam, the very beginning of the human race that has a nature that isn't damaged by sin. In chapter 18, Jesus faced the temptation to give up on his job to suffer for the world and to save it in a garden, just like Adam was tempted in a garden to give up on his job to glorify God. At the end of chapter 20, when Jesus is buried, he's buried in a garden where nobody had been buried before. When Peter and John get to the empty tomb, all of Jesus' clothes are left there, meaning Jesus was probably naked, just like Adam was. And finally, when Mary Magdalene sees the newly risen Jesus for the first time, she doesn't recognize him. And the mistake that she makes is only too appropriate. She sees him and thinks that he's the gardener, just like Adam was the gardener in Eden. So what John is clearly trying to tell us in so many beautiful ways is that the resurrected Jesus is the new Adam. Except that where Adam fell to temptation and sinned and brought sin, death, evil, and everything that we so often lament into the world, Christ, in one fell swoop on the cross, made us all righteous by bearing the evil and suffering of the world, and he destroyed evil by allowing it to destroy him. As Paul says, For just as by Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the Christ's obedience the many will be made righteous. And if Jesus is the new Adam, then that means that we have a new creation. If Adam was the beginning of the first creation, then Jesus' resurrected body was the start of the new heavens and the new earth. God's promise to build a new heavens and a new earth has started to be fulfilled right now, in the middle of history, in the world that we live in right now. Adam was the beginning of the human race, but Jesus was the beginning of a new human race. And that new human race is called the church, which is the very good creation of God that exists all over the earth. Because when Jesus rose from the dead as a new creation, the church began to be infused with the power of God's new heaven and new earth. 
When you decide to join in to the kingdom of Jesus, you are given the power of new creation so that you can slowly, more and more, choose the right kind of things that make the world how it ought to be. And so slowly over a lifetime, the damage that sin has caused is healed more and more. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's the very new heavens and new earth that God promised us so long ago, right here, right now, in the midst of us. And he doesn't say, there will be a new creation, but he is a new creation. What that means is that if we are in Christ, then every one of us is a representative or ambassador of a foreign land. Our citizenship is no longer in this old world, which is infested with sin and death. Instead, we're meant to show the world what it looks like to be a member of the new heavens and the new earth. When they come to our churches, God willing, they should see a completely different kind of community. We treat each other differently than the way that the world treats each other. And it's not because we think differently or try harder. It's because something has changed in our very nature. Somehow, we've been given a tiny seed of Christ's resurrected new life. And that's meant to grow and grow until it consumes us. In the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, we've been given a vision of what the world looks like when, it's, when it is the way it ought to be. And so every day, we can't help but think of ways that we can make this old creation look more and more like the new creation. How can we help it? Think about how great this, this news is. We all know that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be, but that's changing. Our news is the news of the end of pain and suffering and death, and the end of failing relationships, and the end of stubbing toes, and the end of traffic jams, instead the beginning of a new world where nothing stands between me and you and between us and God. And I think one of the things that makes the book of John beautiful literature is that people in this book react exactly as you would expect them to react to that kind of good news. I mean, have you ever gotten really, really, really good news that you couldn't believe at first? It's kind of sad, but I did a little bit of that whenever I watched Commander's football. Whenever something good happens, whether a sack or touchdown or turnover, I never believe it at first. Maybe I've been conditioned by a lot of years of them being awful, but I'm always looking around for a flag because there's no way that we'd be allowed to have something good happen to us. When I finally realize that the play was for real, a smile comes over my face and I'm thinking, no way, really? And you read this gospel, and you can probably hear that same reaction from so many people here. Think about how the followers of Jesus were feeling on Easter morning. They just lost their friend, and they were probably either thinking, we must have been duped this whole time. What a waste of three years. Or something like, well, if Jesus really is who he said he was, it looks like evil has won. The world will never be what it's supposed to be. And this unimaginable grief is punctured by a sudden appearance of Jesus himself. Look at how Mary finds out. The first recorded action of the resurrected Christ in the book of John looks kind of like a practical joke. He asks Mary, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And we know that he knows the answer to both of those questions. 
Just like me, when I'm looking around for the flag, Mary at first is sure that what she's seen isn't right. She's sure that the, it's the gardener, and is probably just even completely done with him, ready to tell him off to leave her alone. She even thinks that the gardener stole Jesus' body. And then Jesus finally lets go of the ruse, and all he has to say is her name, and she knows it's him. The whole thing is gloriously silly and shows you exactly the kind of beautiful intimacy that was between them. And it's exactly how you'd expect to hear the kind of good news that says that goodness is one and that the world is going back to the way it's supposed to be. Then the disciples hear that Jesus is back for Mary. But, of course, they don't believe her because who would? So they're continuing to mourn the death of Jesus. Plus, they're afraid that people might come after them for following a face, false, false, false messiah. So they have all their doors locked. And suddenly, Jesus himself is there, giving them peace and sending them as his ambassadors. How did you imagine the kind of elation they all must have felt when they first came into contact with the new heavens and the new earth for the first time? On Easter, we get to have a little taste of that kind of elation. Because we really need it. We really need every once in a while to feel what they felt like. Every single day, we run into plenty of ways that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But we need to remember how glorious and happy our news is. Evil and death have not won. But they've been swallowed up by the new heavens and new earth in Christ. And that work continues in the church. So we've got a real mission now. At least when it looked like evil and death had won, and that things were never going to be the way they're supposed to be, we should say that we have no responsibility and take things easy for a while. But when we learn that Christ was raised, that means that every single second of our life matters. Because every single second, we have a charge to spread the new heavens and new earth to the world, setting it free from bondage to death and sin and pain and suffering. As Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have a better kind of life available. And that's not just a life that's more enjoyable or meaningful, but we have a change to our very nature that's on offer through Christ Jesus. And we have a vision of the new heavens and new earth, for which Jesus is the guarantee and down payment where pain and suffering and death are no more. So how can we help but try and make this broken world look like that one? Because all this excitement and elation at the resurrection of Jesus is just the smallest appetizer, like a singular tiny meatball before the massive feast that's coming. Because Jesus' new body was only the very beginning of the new world. And as hard as we try, we're probably not going to get much more than that little meatball here. So now imagine what it will feel like when we actually get to see the full, complete fulfillment of God's promise, when the new heavens and new earth come in their entirety. Here's how John describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> 